you have found us. This is Sid Finkelstein, and this is the Sidcast, my podcast where I talk to all kinds of cool and interesting people that you might actually not know, but once you uh, listen to our conversation, you're going to want to know them. And uh, in the, in the uh, Sidcast, I get to have great chats with all kinds of different people, and I was thinking about our guest today, Tim Pearson, who is uh, kind of a, a technological uh, guru of sorts. And I was thinking, boy, technology. I looked at Tim when he was sitting across the table from me, and, uh, and he didn't look like uh, he wasn't wearing a hoodie. Uh, he, uh, uh, he didn't have uh, cool glasses on. He actually had a little bit of gray hair, although I'm not one to talk about that because uh, he did have hair. And he um, and he he has a normal a normal life. You know what? A lot of people in the world of technology, it's not the Silicon Valley crowd that only uh, only dominates uh, in that world. We hear about Facebook and uh, and Google and everyone else, and obviously they're giant. And we'll look for all kinds of ways to uh, to learn about them and and bring them into the uh, into the podcast. But you know, Tim's a uh, computer science professor at Dartmouth College. He was actually a former MBA student of mine at the Tuck School of Business. And he, uh, he was a great student and somehow decided, well, you know, this is a pretty cool thing. Let me get a PhD in computer science. And his research looks at all kinds of ways in which artificial intelligence plays into everyday life. Uh, he, he tells stories about uh, crazy things like... Um, wearable uh, shirts that that have uh, uh, have some type of uh, RFD codes in them that can track your uh, uh, your pulse and your heart rate and all kinds of things like that uh, but technology is in everyone's lives right and think about your uh, your day today uh, before you even uh, started listening to the podcast you um, you, you wake up, maybe the digital alarm clock goes off or your Apple Watch goes off. And by the way, that watch and maybe your Fitbit was probably tracking uh, your uh, your sleep uh, along the way. Hopefully you had a good night's sleep. We know that's important. Uh, and you, you hop out of bed and you use your electric toothbrush. And um, next thing you know, you're checking your emails and your texts and all kinds of things that have come through. And if you drive to work... Uh, our cars are, are basically computers, giant computers that have wheels on it, and off, off they go. And um, I actually walk, uh, walk to work a lot, and so I listen to, guess what, uh, podcasts. And, uh, that's, uh, and that's modern technology at work, uh, at work as well. Tech is everywhere, and so we take it for granted. Uh, Tim talks about the Internet of Things, which really is a fancy way of saying that there are digital uh, components, digital aspects of everything that we do, and uh, that's that's the way that's the way it is. And if we have kids, they have a little kid, uh, kid growing up. This is normal for them. Um, I um, I didn't grow up that way, and maybe some of you as well didn't grow up that way. And we've had to uh, we've had to learn it uh, along the way. And you know, in a, in a world uh, in a world loaded with technology, the question really is: Well, what about what about us? What about people? What about the old analog ways of doing things? And um, I kind of I kind of like some of the analog ways. And look, I love technology. I use it left and right to be sure. But I don't want to give up on some of the kind of old-fashioned ways of 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 interacting, of operating, of, of behaving. And we don't even need to talk about, you know, kids that will text you nonstop but will never bother to pick up the phone or walk into your office or come over to talk to you. I'm not even going to go go talk about that. We've all 
we've all become so dependent on, on technology. So uh, it's great to kind of think about this in all kinds of facets, all kinds of ways. Um, and what I'm hoping, you know, when you listen uh, to my chat with, uh, with Tim, is uh, you're going to start thinking about, well, what about, what about me? You know, how do I fit into this? Uh, what's my role in technology? And, you know, with Tim also, uh, we talked about his career. Uh, I love this question about, uh, you know, how, why do we do what we do? But also, how did we become who we ended up becoming? It's not preordained, I don't think, that, you know, I end up being a professor that now has a podcast. It's not preordained that Tim Pearson would be a, uh, a fighter pilot, um, would uh, be working at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in, in New York, uh, would, uh, would have a PhD in computer science, would have an MBA from the Tuck School, would have been at McKinsey. You get the picture, Tim is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool guy. But how did that happen? How do, how do we end up where we, where we end up? It's going to be one of the I think one of the recurring themes of uh, of the sitcast because it's certainly something that I've always I always wonder I always wonder about. There's one other thing to uh, uh, to mention before we get uh, started and bring Tim uh, bring Tim in here. Um, uh, we talk a little bit about gratitude in this uh, in this podcast, and I, I I don't know about you, but uh, I probably don't spend enough time thanking people or even thinking about people that have helped me. It's the, you know, that old, uh, old expression was a title, actually, of a Hillary Clinton book, um, which was, uh, what, what was it called? Um, we're, we're all a village. We're, it takes a village. That was it. It takes a village. Uh, and I love that idea because it means that all of us are dependent on many, many other people for what we do and, how we, and, and what we become in our, in our lives. And so sometimes taking a little bit of time to say, you know, say thank you, uh, to appreciate uh, what others have done for us sounds kind of, kind of simple, kind of hokey. But you know, Tim Tim does that all the time, and I've tried to get better and better by uh, by doing that uh, by doing that as well. So I'm going to say thank you to uh, Ben, my producer, who's watching me uh, talk right now, and thank you to the uh, to Dartmouth College for letting me do this uh, cool podcast. That gives me a chance to talk to all kinds of fascinating people that have lessons for everyday life. Uh, that all of us are going to care about. So uh, with no further ado, let me introduce our, our guest today in the SIDCAST, Tim Pearson. It's not every day I get to have a former student sitting across from me to, uh, to talk and chat. Uh, Tim Pearson, welcome. Hi, Sid. Good to see you again. Good to see you again. You graduated in 2000 at Tuck, didn't you? 2000. Feels like yesterday. It Does it? Yeah. Yeah, well, you're back in back in Dartmouth, and you have an interesting story uh, story to tell, and a lot of things you've done in your career that I think will be interesting to a lot of people. Uh, but let's start at the beginning. Sure. So let's see. You grew up in in Michigan. I did. Yeah, and so um, you had siblings. Yes, one sister. So a little bit younger than me. A little bit younger. Yeah. And what did your parents do? My dad worked in a wood shop. They made cabinetry for commercial enterprises like banks, things like that. Mm-hmm. My mom worked for a stockbroker. For a stockbroker. Yeah. So, you know, we'll get around to the point of you actually getting a PhD. Sure. So that sounds like a bit of a, uh, of a shift. How did they think about education? They probably really encouraged it, I would think, and supported it. They did. In fact, my dad was the only one of four brothers to graduate from high school. And he realized education opens doors for you. Yeah. And he was really big on that as when I was a young child. In fact, he sometimes jokes that I had no choice but to go to college, that <laughs> it was preordained that yeah. that did, was going to happen. Did your sister also go? She did. She got a master's degree as well. It's also graduate yeah. education. Yeah. You know, it's kind of, 
when you say that, it, it's uh, it's so interesting when you think about people and where they where they end up. You know, my own father didn't graduate from high school. Is that right? Um, and my mother, my mother did, but my father didn't, and it's because of circumstances and having to work and and you know very very poor family, uh, and uh, somehow you know kids all go to school, go to college, do whatever they do. It is rather uh, remarkable how these things sometimes turn out. It is. How how is it that you ended up getting a PhD then, coming from a background like that? You know, it's a, that's a long story that I should do a podcast <laughs> just for myself. Uh, uh, so, Sid, what do you think about this? Well, I think it's this. But you know what I would say is uh, I was really good at school, and I didn't. Th- I wasn't all that good at too many other things, <laughs> and I liked it. Right. And so I just kept going, and one thing led to another. This is actually very interesting. Sometimes. You know, people always wonder, how do you end up doing what you end up doing? And I see, you know, as a, as a, as a father, uh, as you are as well, uh, you see some kids that grow up and they follow kind of such a straight line and they go to, uh, you know, an Ivy League school or wherever they go and then they get a great job and then maybe they go to graduate school and it's almost like a preordained path. And when I see it, I'm always like, I'm shaking my head. I could never have gotten my daughter to follow any preordained path. Right, I right. didn't follow any. It just kind sure. of emerges. I find it fascinating. I do, too. I think there's a, a lot of opportunities out there if you keep your eyes open that sometimes you'll end up in places you would have never imagined. Yeah, and that happened to you as well, I think. It did. <laughs> I would have never imagined I'd be here at an Ivy League school. So uh, so you uh, you grew up in kind of middle-class family? and Yeah, it, uh, it was fairly idyllic as I look back on it. I spent yeah. my time, you know, fishing and uh, camping and spending time out in the wilderness. Uh, Did you? Loved it there. And, uh, and so it was the right place for me, I, I like to say. So you go to uh, college, Michigan State? Michigan Tech. Mich- Michigan Tech. Oops, that, right. that, that's going to get no, me in okay. trouble. <laughs> and uh, your, so your parents were, of course, very excited for you. They were. And, um, and I remember the day I graduated, my mother said to me, you know, when you started this, we didn't know if we were going to be able to pay for this. And uh, we're very proud of you that wow. uh, that you've managed to make it through. How did you pay for it? Well, it turned out the uh, the U.S. Air Force said, "Hey, we'll pay your way through school if you come and fly our airplanes afterwards." And I said, "Hmm, that sounds like a good deal." And uh, so I ended up flying covert infiltration. Then uh, after I graduated from so college, so w- was that ROTC program? It was yes. And so that was regular classes, and then you had some training as well as. Right, right. So you would uh, take a ROTC class like any other class, and they focused on things like leadership. Some of it was around how the Air Force works and how it's structured. Uh, you would, as you became more senior in the school, you started getting responsibility for some of the underclassmen. And it was a great learning experience to start to get your voice as a leader. So um, there, there, are, th- there was a time when um, ROTC on campus was not a very popular thing. I don't know whether uh, that was something you felt or you were probably after the, uh, kind of after that, that stage. So I was probably after that stage. So I was going to college during the Cold War. And so it was not the Vietnam era where... Right. That was the... It was, uh, it was uh, I think, in the 60s, late I, 60s in particular. And right. The, uh, ROTC was banned, and it was just not a cool thing to be doing. And right. Yeah, but you didn't experience anything like that. You know, some, not oh, very yeah, much. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. As, uh, as a rule, I think most people didn't particularly care either way. What was your major in college? Computer science. Computer science. And how did you yes. choose that? 
I guess uh, I took a course in high school and uh, and really liked it. And I mm-hmm. thought, hmm, this this is something that I think I like. I, seems like I'm relatively good at it and looks like it might be a good career. And, right, uh, right. And chose it. Do you remember any of those any of those teachers, either in high school or in college, and any that may have had a big impact on you? Sure, there were several. Mr. Tolger was <laughs> uh, was our computer science teacher in, in, in high school. In high school, and then so in, he was the one that did the class that got you interested. He did, yeah. And uh, and ironically, though, I did uh, very badly in his mathematics class, <laughs> but did pretty well in his computer science class. And uh, uh, and in, in through college, there were a number of uh, of great professors. In fact, I saw one of them not too long ago. Linda Ott um, is still there, and uh, we reconnected. Oh, that's special. So, Mr. Tolger, that was the high school teacher. Yes. And uh, did you ever go back and talk to him or see him? Or? No, I haven't seen him after the day I graduated. Yeah, that, I mean, now yeah. who knows? Hopefully he's still doing well and alive so. and all. But yeah. um, um, one of the great gifts that people can do, and we all know it, but we somehow we don't, and, I, and I'm equally guilty of this, if you, if you will, is not going back. Right. Because as a teacher, and you're sure. you know, entering the world of teaching now more formally, but as a teacher, it is just so fulfilling when... Um, when you know that you've helped someone in right. some way, even w- whether it's in the classroom, whether it's outside the classroom by coaching or helping with a career or something, it's one of the it's one of the best things that I've found in my entire career. I can imagine. I wish I had gone back to uh, to thank him for well, his time. Maybe it's not maybe it's yes. not too late. And it's actually something a lot of people can can think about. Sure. Uh, you know, it's gratitude. Right. Uh, gratitude is just such an important part of life, and people that feel that gratitude. I think they're, they're, they're happier themselves, but they're doing, something, they're doing something for other people. I love it. That feels right. Yeah. So, um, okay, college, and, and, you gra- and so you go right into the military after? I did. It was the Air Force, though. Air Force. And did right. you know it was going to be the Air Force? Was that the deal? Going? It was the deal, yep. So I knew it would be the Air Force, um, I guess, starting in my sophomore year. And could have been something else? It could have been the, the Army. Uh, that Michigan Tech had Army ROTC also. Had it? Why was it Air Force and not Army? I was more interested in the Air Force. So they, they, they were they, they cared what you were interested in, and they accommodated that. Right. Okay. And so, um, where did you go? You went to to training, I guess, right after college. Yep. Where was that? That was in California. In California. Yep. What was that like? Oh, that was the greatest time. I was really? a young man learning to fly airplanes. Uh, oh, I have uh, very fond memories of. Being up at 18,000 feet over the Golden Gate Bridge and getting cleared down for that. Gosh, I forgot what they call it. Uh, sort of the city tour, I think they called it, yep. when you're talking air traffic control. So we put the airplane on one wing and fell for 13,000 feet and leveled out at 5,000 and rolled inverted over the uh, the Golden Gate Bridge. And, oh, man. <laughs> uh, it was just great times. So looking up to see the traffic. Uh, now you're skipping by. over the boot camp part that we all see in the movies. <laughs> Was it there? Right. I mean, oh, yeah. To... yeah, sure. We had to go through that. And uh, and for officers, it's a little bit different than you see in the movies sometimes. In uh, in the movies, you can generally get by if you just keep your mouth shut and do what you're told. But for officers, you're expected to lead and take charge. And, uh-huh. uh, and that was a big part of boot camp for us was leading. And the lesson I learned is um, if you're not being yelled at, you're probably doing something wrong. <laughs> so... What does it mean to be leading at th- that stage of so your career? So at that point, it's uh, it's getting tasks done. It's yep. you have a small number of people, generally somewhere around ten or so, and it's 
uh, something needs to be done, so get that team together, make them function efficiently, yep. and go get the tasks. So it's very task-oriented, and so leadership is really about efficiency, getting the job done in a reasonable period of time. At that point in my career, it at was. That point. It was very, very much around uh, rallying your team and making sure you, you succeed regardless of what obstacles are in front of you. So when you went up in, on, on airplanes, this is the first time you have you had you flown as kind of recreationally? Or? No. In fact, the uh, first time I'd ever been on an airplane was um, that we got an incentive ride on an Air Force tanker. We, we went up and refueled airplanes in flight. And uh, I remember thinking as we were about ready to take off, well, I've signed up to do this. I sure hope I like it. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you did because right. you got a grin from ear to ear oh, talking about right, this. Right, right. I love my time in the service. It's uh, It was it was a good time for me. And um, so you learned, uh, so you were, you were a pilot and you had co-pilot and navigate. I mean, how does it work? Is the pilot, uh, I mean, the pilot's a captain, but is the pilot the, the leader of, of a big team? Yeah. So in our airplane, we had 10 people. I actually flew as a type of navigator and specialized in jamming radar. So I would um, take over the airplane when we were engaged by the enemy and uh, make sure the bad guys missed Okay, well, let's stop right there and think about that a little bit. Make sure the bad guys miss. How'd you do that? So we had a, a number of pieces of equipment on the airplane that could jam radar, decoy, infrared uh, seekers, uh, things like that. Uh, but basically, we made our bread and butter. When I was an instructor, I used to say, uh, you know, we make our bread and butter in mission planning. We avoid the threats, and we use what they call terrain masking. So we'll fly at very low altitudes. And ideally, put a mountain between you and the bad guys. It's tough to shoot through mountains. What is <laughs> what is very low altitude? So we would fly at 250 feet uh, at night on night vision goggles. That doesn't sound like the safest thing I could imagine. It it to a young man that felt like a very reasonable thing to do. As I look <laughs> back on it now, that feels a little questionable. Uh, 250 feet at night, and and you, you, the night vision goggles help a lot. I'm sure, sure that technology yep. is impressive. Uh, and the the concern you had, so with the bad guys, this was, where was this, first of all? Well, we were responsible for any theater around the world. So the special ops community is small. Uh, I was in northern Florida. We had uh, folks in England that handled uh, Europe, and then we had folks in Asia that handled uh, uh, anything that would arise in Asia. But we all worked together, so we uh, we would deploy from the U.S. all over the world. So when you say deploy, so you would have been in, for example, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan as well? So I was in flight school while the first Gulf War was on. Okay. And I was out a few years before this, before 9-11. So we faced um, kind of a different world than uh, we had trained for. So when I was a cadet, it was all around the Russians coming through the, the folding gap the in Germany. War, and right. sure. And... Yet, um, when I finally graduated and got became operational, mm-hmm. the world was a very different place, and mm-hmm. it was no longer about you know World War III. It was now around low intensity conflict. So, we were busy in Bosnia, a few other places around the world uh, during those years. We were also flying over northern Iraq. So the first Gulf War had ended. Right. We had airplanes flying over, enforcing the no-fly zone over northern Iraq. I did a tour as director of operations for combat search and rescue, so I had some helicopters and some tankers that could refuel them in flight, and if anybody would have gotten shot and shot down at that time, then I had teams that would go in and rescue them. Did you actually 
do that in yourself? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we never had anyone shot down during that time, to be clear. But, yeah, I was out flying with the folks. And flying with uh, but the search and rescue, you, you were helping other um, colleagues. In the, sure. Um, um, and your role was? So I was the director of operations. On, but on you, were in, you were in, in the airplanes in the in, Yeah, so time. I would go fly with them. Absolutely. Yeah. Wow. So um, one thing that that's interesting, more at a kind of more strategic level, if you will, is you know what you said about the training you got. You're ready for the Cold War. It's like the old story about getting ready to win the last war, um, which in business is exactly the same challenge, right? Sure. Especially today in the world of for disruption sure. and digital right. everything, right? Uh, and then you know you you get into the real world, and it's a very different scenario. Yeah, I would credit the Air Force as having uh, thought through the fact that the world was a different place. So when I was a cadet, it was all around, again, that Cold War mindset. Yeah. But they thought ahead, I would say, and I'd give them uh, great credit for thinking. Who's the them again in this? They would be, I guess, the uh, higher level folks yep. in the Air Force. Okay. In that special ops suddenly got more money, got newer airplanes, newer equipment, and uh, that uh, I kind of went in on that wave. So as the Air Force realized we need fewer fighters and bombers and we need more low-intensity conflict folks, um, I ended up riding that wave then, and right. special ops became right. uh, much more prominent. So, so Tim, were you ever afraid? Oh, for sure. Maybe always afraid <laughs> <Yeah>. a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> they always joke that, you know, uh, aviation is, you know, 99% boredom and 1% terror. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, when you were getting ready to take off, when you were on, on a mission, what what does that feel like? There's a little bit of nervousness yeah. there, I think, yeah. but also I always felt a, a bit of confidence. Mm -hmm. uh, we trained very hard, and we were very good at what we did, and our mm -hmm. crew was, you know, was finely honed. We'd been practicing sometimes for years together, and when the time came, everybody came together and uh, and did what needed to be done. Yeah, there, I think there are a lot of lessons from that uh, that apply to you know a lot of people in a lot of walks of life. I mean, this deep, deep preparation gives you the sense of confidence. Right. You have to have some humility, so you don't For become sure. you know arrogant or overconfident. Right. Right. But you 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 know you've you've studied this, you've you've trained, you've tried in so many different ways. You have a team that you trust. Right. Absolutely critical. Yeah. Right. And in your case, it's you trust them with your lives. In a business setting, it's not exactly that, but you're trusting them to accomplish what needs to get done. And uh, and that preparation gives you that tremendous uh, feeling. Right. There are a lot of parallels between the, the two worlds. Yeah. Because, uh, of course, you did various things in business that we'll get to. And sure. you're probably able to draw on some of some of these experiences. I found it to be a great starting point. One of the things the military is very good about is giving you uh, plenty of training to handle all kinds of situations. The second thing is you get a lot of responsibility at a very young age. So as I think back to you know the deployment over uh, when we were flying over northern Iraq, I was what, 27 or 28 years old. Yep. I had uh, 130 people. I had $300 million worth of equipment. And that felt completely natural to me that a 27-year-old should be in charge of that. Right. You know, it's very interesting because, you know, being a you know, teacher professor at Tuck Business School, we have um, ex-military folks that are coming sure. in more, more, more and more almost every year. But mm -hmm. there's always a kind of a, a handful. And the type of course that I teach, which is right off the, the start, beginning of the curriculum, is, a, is around leadership and strategic thinking. And 
I could always, you know, you could always tell who had that experience. Is that of right? Of course, part yeah. of it is you could look at them. Right. And they're double the size of most of the other people there. <laughs> and not in a bad way either. Right, right. <laughs> but uh, they, they, they just had the, some of the things that they did, which is so different. Even if you came from, you know, a blue chip company uh, and had a lot of responsibility and working day and night on Wall Street, it's not the same. You know, they'd call it military bearing in the service. Military? Military bearing. It's Mil- about standing tall and projecting uh, confidence. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's called uh, leadership presence. Yes, right, right, right. And a lot of our students today still uh, are very concerned about their ability uh, to make sure that they they have that presence when they right. when they walk in a room and when they interact with people. Sure, to be respected. Right. You know, uh, so you uh, in your time in Iraq, uh, you were on the ground as well. Uh, were you involved with, uh, with 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 the Kurds as a community? We were, and uh, one of the most poignant times uh, of my life, I can remember we were speaking with one of the Kurdish leaders, and Mm. he came to talk to us, and he said, you know, for the first time in anyone's memory, Kurdish people are reaching, Kurdish men are reaching the age of 30. And I remember that was very impactful for me as I was nearing 30 myself, and and he was crediting us with keeping, at that time, Saddam Hussein's forces from from harassing them, and uh, and killing them. Yes, and, uh, worse than it was harassing really, killing. Yeah, it was. Um, it was very poignant, though, to hear that from uh, from somebody, and made yeah. me realize we're doing good in the world. You, you know, again, it's uh, it's a bigger thing than uh, in in many ways, it's a bigger thing than going to your teacher and saying, you know, thank you for what you did for me. But it, it, it's the same. It's the same type of thing. It's. It reminds me of a story. Um, um, my family and I lived in, in Paris on a sabbatical, uh, maybe 2000 and, um, 2001. Okay. Uh, actually, we came back just before uh, 9-11. And then I had, um, and then I, I, I had a lot of reason to go back to Paris for work or whatever. And uh, a couple of years later, I was, I was in a restaurant and I was having dinner with a, with a friend. And um, we were speaking English. Um, it was an American that was living, uh, still living there. And um, um, there was this older man that was uh, in the restaurant. I had not re- noticed him, but um, after you know an hour or two of us having dinner, we were having dessert or coffee or whatever, uh, he comes over to our table. He had been sitting behind, and he was leaving, and he comes over, and um, uh, he's like your stereotypical Frenchman with the, with the beret and the, and the jacket. That's great. And, uh, uh, you know, he's been smoking a lot. <laughs> uh, and he comes over and he, he says to us, and we're just kind of regular people. We were not military people. He said, thank you. He said, thank you for what you've done. We're with you. This was two years after 9-11. Wow. Uh, we, we, uh, he said, we, the French people, and me personally, um, we appreciate what America, what America has done for France. He was, uh, he was thinking about, you know, post-war time sure. as well. Well, World right. War II and yeah. post-war time. He's an older gentleman. Yeah. And, and we're with you now, and we feel for you. And it was, it was really something. And I was just kind of just a person, right? Uh, and he did, and then he, and then he walked out. And, you know, so that happened 15, 16 years ago. I'm never going to forget it. Right. It's, it's powerful when things like that happen. And my hat's off to the younger generation of uh, military folks. They've got it far worse, I think, than we had it. I served during a time of relative peace. Uh, the folks out there that are serving today, I've been in you know, long-term war. and I, The deployment schedule was pretty rough for us. I imagine it's much worse for them today than it was for us. 
Right, right. Yeah, I mean, the wars, uh, the wars continue. Yeah. And, and so you, you were in special ops. I mean, special ops have been around for a while, but it was the beginning, it sounds like, when it started to grow. And now it seems to be a central part right. of the military, right? It, it is. It was, again, you know, I caught that wave as we were transitioning from uh, the Cold War mentality to, you know, post-Cold War, where we weren't worried so much about World War Three as we were yes. about uh, were special you, operations. So were you working with Navy SEALs, people like that? Oh, or? yeah. Yep. Yeah, so our job was to insert them or other elite forces, American or sometimes international forces, and Sneak them back out, and if we did it right, no one would ever know we were there. And you'd be you'd be on the uh, on the planes taking them. That's and right. And then they would parachute down. They would, or we would sometimes land, land somewhere. Or, yep. And then you had to bring them back when they were done mm -hmm. with their mission. And nobody's supposed to know about that. Ideally. Ideally. Yeah. And so what? Uh, so Navy SEALs are kind of legendary. Sure. What, what are they like? What are these people like? I mean, they are not what uh, what you see in the movies. They are not the <laughs> Big, uh, you know, muscular, huge, you know, bodybuilder types. My my experience with them is they're the type of people who can just run all day. They're, you know, wiry and tough and uh, uh, pretty impressive folks. Yeah. And did you, so? Did you interact with them in, in any kind of personal level? You were doing your job; they were doing their job, and we would interact with them uh, fairly often. It wasn't though like we were together twenty four hours a day, but. Uh, as I became more senior, sometimes we would be planning missions together where each of us would be bringing our expertise together. Right, right. So, wow, that's quite a quite an experience. We're, t we're talking with Tim Pearson, um, and let's just take a short break and come back and start talking about um, what happened after uh, the military. We're back with Tim Pearson. And we're going to talk about what Tim did after the military, which is only three or four other careers. Uh, and I, I don't know how this happened, but you, uh, um, you have your six years um, in the military. And then you get a job uh, after that at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. Right. Very natural segue. I'm sure a lot of people would think that's the first job you get out of the military. Well, naturally. How, how, how the heck that happen? Well, as it turned out, there were a number of companies that specialize in putting military officers in civilian jobs. And I ended up uh, speaking with one of them. They have these hiring conferences where I interviewed with eight different companies over the course of two days. And you, as the person interviewing for a job, get to rank the companies, and the companies rank you as well. And if there's a match, then you go on to a second round. And it's like a speed dating. Thing. Yeah, kind <laughs> of. And uh, I had gone in thinking I wanted to work for GE, that I had heard about their uh, management program, okay. their legendary uh, development program. And... So I did interview with GE and got a call back with them, but I also interviewed with the museum, and, uh, and they were fantastic. And it turned out I um, ended up interviewing on site at the Met, my first time ever in New York City. Wow. And uh, they took me to the U.S. Tennis uh, Open, or the U.S. Open tennis match, and uh, it was just a great experience. Right. And, and so um, you, you go to the Met. What, so what, did they, what were you doing? So the Met, I wore two hats. Um, the uh, first hat, I was a project manager, and they would say, build this, and I'd get a construction crew. And I would say, hmm, all right, guys, I don't know anything about construction. How do we make things? 
And it was really about leading the teams, getting things done. Similar skill set similar that you had. To what I had seen. So what's an yeah. example of, you know, build this, of something you would build? So we built a new, we called it the command center, where all of the alarms for the museum report. In, and we have folks there that are monitoring the museum and ensuring public safety. So they're looking for uh, certainly any threats to the museum around theft or fire or things of that nature. But a lot of the work was also around somebody got sick and we need to facilitate an ambulance, right. things of that nature. So I I was in charge of building a new command center, we called it. A new command center. So, and, and that's out of sight, obviously, for any... Um, you know, any any museum goer, it's sure. somewhere in a bunker in the basement or right, something. Right, it is. And there, and there are cameras everywhere. There are a fair number of cameras, and so they have uh, a whole bank of cameras that the folks that are kind of quarterbacking the museum's defense are looking at, and they can call up different views. And so, for instance, if somebody were having a heart attack, they would be watching the ambulance come in on one set of cameras right. and have another camera on the patient mm-hmm. and be in contact with, uh, with folks that were actually in the galleries, perhaps, with them. And, and so the way they would monitor what was going on is visually. Visually and via radio. So the with, museum with the, has... Because there were guards or yeah. ushers or whatever you call them all over. There are. There are... At that time, there were 500 security guards there. So wow. the second hat I wore is I was assistant security manager, and so I had to make sure they showed up and did what they were supposed to do. And right, uh, and that was that was kind of another blocking and tackling uh, job. And probably there's some turnover in that job. And there is a great deal of great turnover, deal of turnover in turnover. that job. At the time, uh, the economy was booming, and we were uh, what year? What year are we talking? So about? that would be 1996 to 98. Okay. So the economy was good. The museum didn't pay the guards a whole lot. So yep. folks would take the job, and if something better came along, they would often leave. So, so you we know, were... we go to a museum, and you see these um, security folks um, walking around, and they've got their radios or whatever, and they usually tell you, you know, no flash and other things. It's all very calm and relaxed. But what kind of training do they get? So they would get training in how to handle the public. A lot of their training was simply learning the museum. It's enormous. And it's... Yeah, give uh, some direction. Yes, right? exactly. Especially a giant right. place like the Met. That's right. And, uh, and so there was sort of a progression that if you stayed in that field where there were uh, folks that were security guards... Then there were section leaders, and mm. then there were special officers who actually carried weapons. Um, and so there's kind of a progression. And then it went up from there up until my position, and then I reported into the uh, right. security manager. Now, I'm, I'm thinking about this command center, and so it's based on you know, visual and cameras and then people on the ground. It sounds somewhat similar to, you know, it's not military, but, you know, surveillance, uh, Right. Uh, but I'm also wondering, you know, it's there's is that is that the direction of security uh, for museums or other organizations like that? Is that what we're going to see or is there a role for artificial intelligence? Is there a role for some other more digitally enabled methods? Because this depends on a lot of people and especially if, I, if you're in a control center, command center, and you have the, I imagine, a lot of screens. And, sure. and you look, I mean, that depends on people really paying attention, doing their job, and people are not perfect at that. And people take breaks and people talk right. and uh, lose attention for a minute. And I'm thinking that maybe there's some technical or technological uh, solutions um, in that space. 
Yeah, I think one of the big trade-offs that museums in particular have is showing the artwork in the way that maybe the artist intended. You don't want to put it behind glass, ideally. You, know, you don't yeah. want barriers between the viewer and the piece of art. So ideally, the uh, the person viewing the art can can view it from different angles and be unobstructed. Uh, right. Certainly, we don't want them right. to damage it in any mm-hmm. way. But um, So one of the biggest things the the presence of the guards were, were around making sure that people didn't make honest mistakes where they would lose themselves sometimes and uh, wander in and try to touch things. And so they would uh, try to, you know, try to discourage that in a friendly way if, if they could. And most times people didn't mean any harm by it. They, sure. Uh, sure. You know. uh, and did you ever, uh, what, what was there, were there any robberies during that time? So not while I was there, at least none, not on your we watch. Of, right, yes, none that we were aware of. Although there were a few stories I heard around. For instance, somebody managed to sneak a card, and at that time the museum's catalog was a card catalog, like you would find in the in a library. And so they managed to sneak a card into the card catalog, and they went to sell a painting. And they said, "Oh, well, the the Met will vouch for this." Um, and so they looked it up and said, hmm, sure enough, there's a, uh, a card here. This looks legitimate, although somewhere along the line it was caught. That was a bit of folklore that went around the museum, uh-huh. though. It was before my time. Yeah, yeah, wow. And so did you become or were you perhaps already an art lover or become more of an art lover during that time? Oh, it was a great learning experience for somebody like me who had a technical background but right. didn't know all that much about art. Um, the, I found the curatorial staff was generally delighted to answer questions or point things out. We would have special exhibits, generally monthly, and the curator would give a talk around who the artist was, why it was important, what to look for. And it was amazing for somebody like me. They'd call out things that I would have never noticed on my own. Of course, of course. And do you go back sometimes? I do sometimes. We uh, we don't get back to New York as much as uh, as we'd like sometimes, but uh, it's it's always great to walk around. And there. do you know, would you know some of the people there? Yeah, it's been a long time now, but I still uh, still remember time. people, and it's amazing. Some of them will remember me. and uh, They will. And they'll, they'll call me out yeah, I should. I, I really shouldn't be asking this question, but I can't resist. Uh, if you were a bad guy and you wanted to steal something, <laughs> would you know what to do? <laughs> I, I would know what to do 20 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. Let's not go any further right. than that one. <laughs> um, so uh, why why did you leave the Met? Sounds like kind of an idyllic place to be after being in, in you know in Iraq and all over the oh, world. Oh, I loved my time at the Met. It was fantastic, and it was really a difficult decision. Uh, I had though, as I was getting out of the Air Force, applied to business schools, and I didn't know whether I was going to be accepted. And I couldn't get out of the Air Force until November. Business schools started in August. And so I had a dilemma, which was stay in the Air Force one more year and see if I would get accepted anywhere and then start the following year. But at the time, there was uh, rumors going around that the special ops community is pretty small and they weren't going to let folks like me out. And uh, and I thought, hmm, I I think I want to go to business school. I'm going to get out and ended up finding the job at the Met, applied to business schools, got accepted here at Tuck, 
but I loved my job at the museum so much, I actually deferred Tuck for a year and, uh, and right. stayed at the museum. Interesting. So, but what, what did you mean by, you know, the rumors that they wouldn't let people like you out <laughs> yeah, for right. boating? So, and it was probably more rumor mill than, sure. uh, than factual, but uh, there was a, a, this notion of a stop loss where um, at least the rumor that went around the, uh, mm. the flyers was uh, that when your commitment's up, you'll not be out. That's you know in retrospect a little bit suspect. I don't think it's indentured servitude there, but certainly that was a rumor going around, and wow, you may not be able to get out. That's kind of amazing, uh, not be able to get out. But it wasn't the case. You figured it out. So so you deferred any. So why tuck? Uh, so you know, this, people listening to this podcast, there's plenty of people that know the Upper Valley and Hanover and and Dartmouth, of course, but not everyone. Um, and so tuck is in Hanover, New Hampshire, and beautiful woods and small school. And yeah, but was, why was that the right place for you? Yeah, it was for those reasons you laid out mm. uh, among others. So I love the environment here, being outside, being in the, away from the big city. I'd been in New York and kind of wanted to come back to an environment like Tuck. The other draw for Tuck, of course, other than its location, is the education that you get. And world-class professors such as yourself and, uh, and your colleagues uh, were... That was fantastic, and my classmates also were really impressive folks. Yep, and, and you're friends with plenty of classmates, I bet. Still. Oh yeah, yeah. We I talk to Tuckies generally at least one almost every week. At least one every yeah. almost every week. And this is you graduated two thousand years you know, later, almost, almost twenty yeah. years from when you right. from when you started. Yeah. So, um, uh, did you find the transition to business school challenging in any way? I mean, it's a different way to do things. Back to school, yes. it's very quantitatively right. oriented. Yep, uh, I found it to be fantastic. So that I'd been working for a while. I came back to school. People wanted to teach you things. You were surrounded by interesting people going through the same experiences yep. as you. I I loved it. I remember thinking at the time, if I could make this last twenty years, it'd be a great career. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. Uh, and so. Uh, was I one of your professors? You were. Yeah. You, in fact, you were one of the first professors that we had. You taught us uh, analysis for general managers, AGM, if I remember. That's that. kind of unbelievable that you remember that. Uh, <laughs> Maybe you were doing your homework in I advance did. of yep. uh, coming yep. here. Uh, so uh, was I a good teacher? Yeah. You were great. Uh, okay, you're was, just, yeah. Well, what am I going to say now, now right? But, but now, now in, in, you know, now you're a teacher. So you uh, right. have been, in a, uh, have been thinking about this part of your life and your, your, your world uh, for, uh, for the last several years. Um, yeah, I think one of the things I liked is the focus on the real world. That yep. I had been you know, working, I'd been in the Air Force, I'd been at the museum, so I'd seen a little bit at this point, and I loved the idea that it wasn't simply um, theoretical. We talk about real problems and how real managers deal with them, and, uh, right. and that was really helpful for right. me to go on to the next stages. And so you graduated. Where'd you go next? I went to McKinsey and Company. Yeah. So that's classic business school thing. Go to McKinsey. Very have you much. been reading about McKinsey lately in the news? I have seen a little. The Times ran a, an article recently. There was so. a, there was an article a while back, um, um, and actually a whole series of articles about some of what McKinsey's been uh, doing in in some countries. And McKinsey's the those people again are not quite sure of it. The primary, the the most prestigious. Uh, along with you know, Bain and BCG, but n no less than third and probably first from that group. Um, and um, yeah, they've uh, um, they've ended up uh, in some controversial places. 
uh, which is uh, which could be a watershed in business. But so you were in McKinsey, and what was that? What city were you in? I was in the Chicago office in Chicago, and I know you 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 can't talk about specific clients, although it's such a long time ago. Feel free to do so. <laughs> but in a nutshell, what would you say you learned at McKinsey? So at McKinsey, they used to talk about T-shaped consultants broad from having a wide perspective of industries and functions within industries, and then deep in one particular area. So I was fortunate to see a lot of great industries. My first, uh, early on, I only stayed at McKinsey for two years, uh, but started to grow that spike then, the deep area in the financial institutions group. Mm -hmm. So we would serve uh, all kinds of financial services companies from insurance companies. What would be an example of an assignment of something you did that you can recall? Oh, golly. Well, the the very first one that I think of is sort of the canonical uh, strategy consulting engagement that uh, we sometimes think, and that was uh, working for a big oil company. Okay. And they wanted us to help them forge closer ties to automobile makers, but they wanted us to look 30 years into the future. And I remember thinking at the time, wow, the picture gets a little hazy yes, about five years out. Uh, <laughs> and at that time, they were concerned about the rise of fuel cells. So this was before the electric uh, vehicle uh, movement had, had right, taken off. Right. And uh, and so they were wondering, what does this mean for us if everybody's going to burn hydrogen? What does this mean for right. us as an oil company? And they wanted they wanted your team to kind of do a little crystal balling, collect whatever right. data they could. Yep. And, so basically, just get some smart people to give them some ideas on what might happen. Exactly. What yeah. might happen and what should they do now to get ready for it? And back then, uh, were you able to see or know much about, you know, electric vehicles that you just mentioned, battery technology? Is that something that was on horizon even then? It was on the horizon even then. It was um, the, the big technology that everybody had their eye on at that particular time was fuel cells, but... Among others, electric vehicles were were things that people were thinking about. Yeah, they were. And uh, transportation is something you continue to be very interested in. As it turned out, As, yes. as it turned out, because uh, I know later you, you had your own startup that was involved in, in transportation. Uh, but uh, before we get to, to that, maybe another step along the way, um, what do you think about electric cars? Oh, gosh, I love the idea that maybe we'll have less pollution. Uh, there's all kinds of benefits. I'm certainly no expert in this. I wonder how the power grid will handle the extra load of, uh, of millions of yeah, electric elect- vehicles. Electric cars is not free yes. energy. Energy right. has to come from somewhere. Comes from somewhere, right. Yeah, that's right. And self-driving cars, have you thought much about that or studied that or looked into that? So I haven't studied it formally. Um, it, uh, it strikes me as a very tricky problem to make sure that you're handling all the things that can come up that a driver has to deal with in all conditions, whether it's snowing, raining, uh, sunny, nighttime. It's, right. it's a tricky challenge. And there's also the kind of the classic and really difficult ethical questions because and tell me tell me if you think this is accurate, but it's been depicted as you know there's there are other cars on the road that are not self-driving and they could be doing something wrong and uh, the car's got to make a decision and right. somebody is going to get hurt or maybe even die and they some of the modeling has to compare you know what what is the value of a life? Yeah, I know one of the classic problems they wrestle with in that world is. Uh, should I hit a uh, an elderly person crossing the road or a school bus? I'm going to have to hit one of them. Uh, you know, how does the vehicle mm. make that decision? 
those are thorny questions. You know, um, um, Yuval Noah Harari, who's written um, Sapiens and, and um, 21 Lessons for the 21st Century, uh, he cites some research on this question where um, uh, when you ask uh, people uh, what, they, what they would do when the choice is between killing somebody or killing yourself, they always, they, 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 they say we won't kill anyone else. But then when you start to dig into it a little bit deeper, you, you know what the answer is going to be. Right. Um, and, and the market will speak for itself. It could be that there are these options. I mean, it kind of sounds crazy, really, doesn't it? That there, I mean, there's an option today. Do you want, uh, um, I don't know, side impact? Uh, do you want, you want backseat, uh, um, um, I, I don't know, um, I forgot what they're called, even. Uh, <laughs> uh, other safety. Uh, yes, uh, that's of. right. Uh, but now you, now the option is, well, do you want an option that allows you to survive in an accident or right. kill the person? I mean, it's beyond crazy. I mean, how are we ever going to figure that stuff, that stuff out? These are authority questions. I'm not sure I know the answer to these. I don't think anyone can, can know the answer. Um, it's almost like philosophers have to come into this and not right. just tech not just tech folks. Well, I think that's an important point is the tech world needs to learn from these other disciplines. Folks have been studying a variety of, uh, of disciplines that could be helpful for uh, helping the technologists implement right. decisions. And, that you, are and you have a deep technology background. Do you, do you sen- have you seen that? Do you sense that? Are you seeing a shift in, in kind of the awareness and, and, and knowledge uh, or openness of kind of the computer science, tech, uh, coding world uh, to you know an analog world, a world that's just not not the same, but has, as you just said, thought about some of these kind of existential issues and human issues right. for years, for for not just years, for you know for Plato and Aristotle were sure, writing for about millennia. This. That that's folks right. have been thinking about this. I think in the uh, in the computer science world, there's a big push now for interdisciplinary teams where we realize we can learn from other disciplines that, as you say, have thought about this for long periods of time and may have thought about it much more deeply than we might have uh, coming from a technology side. Yeah, and and I don't know if you've seen that or that's something that, that you think is, you just think it's going to happen more or is there really a trend like that happening? Well, I think there's a trend here at Dartmouth where mm-hmm. there's uh, been funding that's been, uh, I believe there's a large donation for uh, you know interdisciplinary teams recently. Yes. There's, uh, for instance, the one of the hot topics right now in computer science is this notion of artificial neural networks where we're building neural networks to help make decisions where you feed this uh, this model mm-hmm. data, and mm-hmm. then it makes uh, makes a prediction, or uh, in some cases, in self-driving car, might say, "Take this action, hit the brakes," for instance. Mm-hmm. But that uh, has really come out of collaboration with brain science, where we're trying to model how mm-hmm. neurons in the brain function, and right. we're doing that in silicon instead of in the human brain. That's it's, that's kind of, that's amazing. I was listening to uh, Elon Musk talk about. Uh, mm-hmm. Something analogous to this. He has so many startups, you know, who knows which. Sure. But there is one. I don't know what he calls it. Uh, the idea is something like implanting some type of device in our brains. I mean, am I getting that right? And somehow combining what, what evolution has given us uh, with the best technology available. Yeah, and it, this is outside my area of expertise, so I, sure. I can't you know, opine on it with a great deal of authority. But um, but I know people have been talking about augmenting humans with, you know, with input. Even something today that's getting a lot of press are things like augmented reality, where you may be looking through a set of glasses 
And the computer is overlaying then information about objects that you see uh, onto your glasses. So you see both the real world and the digital world combined into one view. Right, you got to help me on that one now. So right. I, get, I get seeing the real world yep. with my rose-colored glasses. Right? <laughs> but what, what does right. it mean to see the, uh, what did you call it, digital world? or? Yeah, so maybe I'm wearing a set of glasses and I'm looking across the table mm -hmm. at you yep. and there's a laptop on the table. Okay. And so maybe what I see through my glasses is both that laptop and maybe a label over top that says uh, Apple laptop, for instance, mm -hmm. uh, on it. And it's identified what that object is for me. Um, so, I, things, so far, I'm not seeing a big practical value to that, but I guess that's a baby step to seeing a lot more. Yeah, that the people have been uh, thinking about tagging uh, real-world objects that you might see. So, yes. for instance, you stop in an art museum and you stop in front of a famous artwork. Maybe what you see through your glasses then is right. the artwork itself right. and then overlaid on your glasses information about who the artist was, when it was created, what the circumstances were. So as so you're that. looking at the artwork, um, you could read a variety of things. Perhaps. And, and might not only be reading, could be visual, could be all kinds of different Correct. forms of communication. That's right. It doesn't have yeah. to be simply text. So that's a really interesting example given your, your met sure. art, art background. Uh, and I was just... Um, um, I was just at the uh, Whitney Museum oh, in, great. Uh, in New York City, and uh, and so you you stop and you look at um, a work of art, and then the, you know by the side it it gives you the information about that. So you do one, then the other, and you do them sequentially. And you, what you just said, I could see a lot of sure power to that. Yeah, that I'm learning about it at the same time uh, while I'm watching. That's right, and you learn at your own pace. So if you want to linger and look at a piece of art longer or maybe dive into more details than most people would, that might be available to you, for instance. Have you looked into this in the context of, you said learn at your own pace, so it makes me think about school, of course. Sure. Right? For kids at school or, or university and, um, or any, any school, really. Uh, are you aware of kind of that, that movement and what, that, what, what might be happening there? Yeah, I... Uh, one of the big things that's somewhat close to my research is this notion of ubiquitous computing, where the computing fades into the background. So you don't even think about it. For mm -hmm. instance, we're sitting here in this room and there are lights on. Yes. We're not thinking about the electrical company providing power to the room, um, things like that. It's just faded into the background for us. And we take it as, uh, as a given that it's available to right. us. Computing, there's a, a notion, it's sometimes called pervasive computing mm -hmm. or ubiquitous computing, where the idea is the technology fades into the background and we just get used to the notion that it's there and available for us. Instead of being kind of the central thing. Right. Yeah, that's kind of amazing because, you know, a lot of people talk about um, how people are getting addicted to iPhones and smartphones and all the rest. And right. You're talking about something that, I don't know if that's a solution to that problem, but it's opposite, isn't it? Yeah, it, in in some cases, perhaps it's worse. So I've seen uh, I've seen videos in some cases. One seemed uh, rather uh, to be a dystopian view of the future, where uh, it showed somebody getting on a bus, and there were constant advertisements going on and things being tagged with this. Uh, augmented reality um, and uh, there's just too many things all over yeah the to, as I watched this demonstration mm -hmm. I thought I don't want that that that's, yeah. that would be overwhelming wow. for me but. wow so many interesting things to think about well let's take uh, let's take a short break sure. with uh, with Tim Pearson and when we come back maybe talk a little bit more about tech and fill in fill in a couple more blanks in your uh, um, uh, in your journey great
We're back with Tim Pearson. Tim, when we uh, uh, before we took a break, we were talking about some uh, some technology ideas and changes that are going on, uh, and you're particularly well placed to talk about that because uh, you end up going back to school again uh, for a PhD at Dartmouth in computer science. Yes, I I did. I I just finished up in this round. And you just finished in 2018, right? That's correct. Uh, Why did you do such a thing? You know, it's something that I've always wanted to do, but it was never the right time for me. So after undergrad, I needed to pay the Air Force back for uh, paying for my education. And all along, I'd kind of had it in the back of my head that Hmm. I'd like to get a PhD at some point. Um, And finally, I was working with a startup And we had just completed a big project. They had a marquee client. I thought, okay, you guys are on the launching pad. You're looking great. I'm starting to get old. uh, (laughs) If I'm going to go do this, I need to make this decision. And so I unwound my position with them and and then came back to Dartmouth for a PhD in computer science. In computer science. So um, it makes me think of what we talked about earlier as well, about your parents and, you know, going to university. Um, What was that like when you... Told them about. Oh, they were delighted. Uh, Beyond delighted, were, I yeah, guess. Yeah, they were. A uh, PhD at, at, at Dartmouth uh, in computer science. Oh, they were, uh, they were grinning from ear to ear uh, yeah. at graduation. Yeah. Was, there any, was there ever any doubt that it would be computer science or any, any other topic? I mean, that was it. Computer science or perhaps something related to business as well. I'd considered, um, uh, given my background here at Tuck, what I was really interested in at the time was though, how can we use data to make smarter decisions? Mm-hmm. And that sort of sparked the idea that I, I would uh, like to get a PhD and study this. As it turned out, my, uh, my field of study was slightly differently uh, different. It was more related to privacy and security is sort of a, the broad umbrella that that my so research falls can under. you share share with us a little bit about you know your research uh, that you know the average person is going to be able to uh, understand? Sure, sure. Well, many researchers are predicting that there will be a lot more connected devices in the future. So things that don't have computational capabilities today will likely get them in the future. For example, so perhaps the shirt you're wearing may monitor your heart rate and breathing. Perhaps. There's going to be some type of computer chip built into the. Yeah, shirt. people are working on that. There are prototypes. They're working out on it right there. now. Oh yeah, there are prototypes out there now. And one of the things I'm interested in is how are we going to manage all of these devices? Mm. So imagine a world where you need to set up and configure every shirt that you own and your shoes <laughs> and your dishwasher and your lights and your locks on your front door. We may have dozens or hundreds of connected internet-connected devices in our homes in the near future. So I'm interested in how we'll manage them, so how we'll set them up how they'll operate mm. uh, going forward securely. It would be bad if your shirt were hacked, perhaps. Um, oh, now and, that's uh, crazy. They're going to hack my shirt. <laughs> perhaps. And uh, and then um, how will we make sure... I'm just picturing what together. that would look like yeah. to, <laughs> my shirt was, was hacked. I mean, it would start, the buttons would start opening. Uh. <laughs> Could be. And uh, in, in that case, though, your shirt may not be something you're particularly uh, concerned about. But imagine instead it's an implanted uh, pacemaker. In, in your body. And Has that happened already? People have done research where they've demonstrated that, that could happen. pacemakers can be hacked, oh, where they boy. can be uh, triggered to uh, administer a shock to the heart, for instance. Oh, my. 
And so these are the kind of questions that interest me, particularly when this model we've used all along where there's a small number of devices and we can spend some time to set each one up and make right. sure it's set up right. correctly, securely. Mm -hmm. That's going to become much, much harder when you have dozens or hundreds of these devices. Yeah, so now over time it's become almost anything you buy is easier in the sense that it's out of the box and they have, what do they call it, a quick start or something. Sure. The long start and the long everything is like 20 million pages all online. <laughs> uh, anyway, I just right. bought uh, a, a new coffee grinder. Coffee is one of my crazy hobbies. And it's like a really high-end, fantastic grinder. And um, it's uh, it has the quick start. It took me only an hour to do the quick start, but it was it was fair. <laughs> and it gave me a little tool that I had to adjust, if you can imagine, an hour like mechanically. For, yep, right. But uh, and I'm not too good at that. But it took me only an hour, and yeah. then uh, and then I made uh, I made the first uh, coffee with it, and it was awful. It didn't work. <laughs> and so I start going through the manual. There's a big there's a big learning curve just for just for that. And I'm using that as an example of how they they helped me. They made it much simpler than it could have been, and it's still very difficult. So it's exactly your point. And that's craziness. You'd have to spend an hour setting up a coffee maker. You know, back uh, a few years ago, you'd go buy a Mr. Coffee and plug it in, and you were done. You were done, and, but then you didn't have good coffee. <laughs> I suppose that's right. But there have been a lot of... Uh, a lot of incidents now where devices that you're talking about, I'm, I'm going to guess perhaps it had an internet connection uh, where you could set it to exactly. brew. And, exactly. Uh, and what, there's a famous uh, incident that happened at the end of 2016 where uh, hackers had taken over webcams. And they used these webcams, the computing power in these webcams in aggregate. So they'd taken over thousands of these devices and used them to attack one of the backbones of the internet. In fact, a company called Dyne, which is here in New Hampshire. And it took a, a chunk of the internet offline because all of these thousands and thousands of webcams were sending information mm -hmm. to this, this portion of the, the internet's backbone. Uh, at the same time, it's called a denial of service attack. And so while each of these webcams was a very small computer, if you will, didn't have a lot of computing power, in aggregate, all of these devices were a formidable force right, right, and had an outsized impact on the Internet. So I could see the concern uh, with hackers. Uh, so there's two things. One is hackers uh, taking, and, and it's no longer whether it's going to happen. It's just a question of when, it seems like. Uh, but the other one is the, connect, the connectivity that you were talking about. There's so many different components, and you, you want them to work, work together. Uh, and, you know, you think about today, this is about standards. And you think about today, we have Alexa, we have Siri, we have Google. I don't know if Google has gave it a name, Google Assistant. Google uh, Home, I think, too. Google yeah, Home. Right. Yeah. And they're, 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 it seems like there's some compatibility, but it's far from perfect. And it, seem, and it also seems like this is an old story because, you know, there's the Betamax and the VHS that goes way, way back. And uh, Wi-Fi, uh, as, as you were saying uh, earlier in our break, is a... Uh, uh, has different different ways of doing things. So why why does the tech world make this so difficult? Well, in what's some wrong ways, with you guys? <laughs> <laughs> in some ways, it strikes me that the vendors want to lock you into their ecosystem. So Apple wants to make sure the next product that you buy is an Apple product. Yes. Google wants to do the same. Amazon would like you to buy Amazon products. So in some ways, these vendors have an incentive to make things work easily in their ecosystem, but perhaps not share it. So for instance, it's very difficult to get 
your MP3s, your songs, uh, to go from the Apple world to the Android world. They don't want you to be they don't able want, to do they that. They want that to happen, right. so you got to stay with the Apple. Right. Yeah. And so it takes time then. Mm-hmm. What seems to happen is eventually standards form. So Wi-Fi is an example I use sometimes. We were talking about it on the break, where we don't have to have a Cisco Wi-Fi and an Intel Wi-Fi and a Broadcom Wi-Fi. We have one standard, and everybody conforms to that. That may happen in some of these cases where you're talking about you know, Apple and Alexa right. and, and things like that. If it does, my guess is it'll be a ways out until we uh, mm. until we standardize. I'm, I'm still thinking about the the shirt that could get could get hacked. Uh, and so, what do you think about all uh, all the things that are going on in terms of privacy and security? Facebook um, is kind of exhibit exhibit A lately, but uh, there's questions about all the big the right. big players, right? Well, and there are a number of things about what we do with data once it's aggregated. But even before that, there are questions around how we configure new devices when they come in, into a home. So I'll give you a for instance. We go and talk to doctors at the hospital and we say, hey, would you be interested in a blood pressure monitor that a patient could take home, take their blood pressure every day. It would report in their blood pressure into your electronic health record. And you could get alerts if the patient's blood pressure is too high or too Mm -hmm. low. Or if you change their prescription, you could see then how it's affecting them, perhaps, without even calling the patient in. And the doctors say, gee, that sounds great. We'd love something like that. And then we go and we talk to the patients. And an example I sometimes use is my dad. Hi, dad. I hope you're not listening. Um, <laughs> he, is, he is a smart guy, but he is not a technology guy. Sure. And one day I asked him, um, dad, do you know your Wi-Fi password? And his answer was, I don't have Wi-Fi. And I said, hmm, I know you do because I put it in. <laughs> and, uh, and so he is not going to be able to take this wireless blood pressure yeah, monitor home, yeah, yeah. hook it up to his Wi-Fi, and get uh, data transmitted to, uh, right. to his electronic health record. So some of the research I've been doing is around ways we might be able to help people. So we uh, invented uh, what I call uh, Wanda. It's a uh, imagine a magic wand. And it's got two antennas on it. And mm-hmm. it turns out if I can bring this magic wand very close to a new device, I can impart the Wi-Fi password onto this new oh, device. God. Can I have one of those? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe. So we're, uh, we're trying to figure out how we might commercialize it. In fact, working with Tuck next term to uh, look at markets for this. And so it's this magic wand, this. and it transfers the Wi-Fi. The Wi-Fi password onto the new device. Uh, onto the new device. And, uh, and then the device can then connect to yeah. your Wi-Fi router and, uh, and start sending right. its data. But again, the more connected we become, don't we become more vulnerable? We do. And that's, that's one of the big concerns where f- nobody had been thinking about webcams, for instance, being hacked and aggregated up and all their computing power summed together to attack, uh, to attack a right. target. Right. It's kind of like, you know, it, uh, so many financial institutions have been, have been hacked. And you know, that's the type of place you think that should be safe. And they spend... Right. I can't imagine how much money they spent to try to avoid that, but it, it's happened. And so there are people I know that um, uh, purposely, uh, and it's not that they have a ton of money, but they leave a little bit of money with one bank, with another with another financial institution, and they don't tell each other about right, that, which right. the, the financial, kind of the wealth manager will say, that's not a good idea. You want one whole 
kind of bundle of assets so you could manage it efficiently in the best way. But they do it se- and they do it separately because they're afraid of um, risk. If it's all, if it's all kind of yeah. connected, right? One guy, one one kind of group of hackers can find it and mess it up. And and where we're going in the home, for example, is you know the lock in the back using uh, Nest or whatever, and the thermostat and sure. let uh, and so these things are happening and Wi-Fi and 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 TV and Alexa. Um, and Siri, and these things are happening even before the, the, the shirt and the blood pressure and everything else. Right. These are starting to happen now. And if this proliferation of devices uh, comes to pass like many people think it will, we're going to have a big problem if we don't have a way to securely configure devices, make sure they're talking to who they're supposed to be talking yeah. to. So we need data to... Uh, yeah to go where it should go. So my medical data goes to my record, your medical data goes to yes, your record. Yes. And we need to manage these going forward. Things yeah. will fail, they'll need to be replaced. Um, we have a big, yeah. big task in front of us. So I'm thinking that this is this may very well be the Achilles heel of, of this wave of technology is changing the world. Uh, there, there will come a point, well, there may come a point where people say, it's just not worth it. Now I can't go back to you know being a, 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 a luddite you know right. living live, living a different life, um, or I mean I'm saying that, but man, now I'm also thinking well maybe people will say uh, you know this is the cost of doing business. This is you know everyone else is doing it. Um, I think what's happened is we've taken baby steps to give up uh, privacy. So we'll use Gmail, and I use Gmail, and yet Google learns a, an enormous amount of. It's information true. about me. They got it all. But I took a baby step there thinking, oh, gee, free email. This is great. And we take little steps here and there where we give up a little bit of our privacy, a little bit of our security sometimes. Yep. And uh, it's easy then to take tiny steps and over a relatively short period of time realize we've given up quite a bit of information about ourselves. You know, a while ago, New York Times had that big article. I don't know if you saw it about location. Um, and how we have location uh, tracking uh, option on on all kinds of apps. We don't even know. Most people don't even know. When I read that, I went back and I started looking. and said, well, yeah. And, and uh, in, that, in that article, they were talking about how you could trace. It was quite easy, they actually said, to trace an individual, what they did all day and where they went. Right. Now, that's like really, I mean, that's good for law enforcement if we live in, you know, 1984, uh, which is a funny thing to say that year, but right. that, the, that, that book and that logic or, you know, an authoritarian police state, uh, they probably like stuff like that. But that doesn't sound that doesn't sound too good. Yeah, and that's one of the things that my research group thinks a lot about is mm. how do we maintain our privacy in this kind of world? And it's it's a struggle. People are willingly giving up, you know, taking baby steps to what give up think, information about What do you think is going to happen? You know, I wish I had the answer it's, to that. So this is like yeah. your new McKinsey project, 30 right. years in the future. 30 years of ridiculous right. today. Even one year is complicated. It's but. amazingly complicated. Uh, yeah. There are new advances that come out all the time and, uh, you know, Techniques that were secure in the past, for instance, sometimes fail under newer techniques where we used to anonymize data. And people have come up with some very clever means to mm-hmm. de-anonymize data. Wow. So the example you were giving around tracking who goes where. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe we know the ID of the particular device and where it's going. And it turns out oftentimes we can 
determine that it's one individual that must have that device. That article, I think, uh, I read the same one. They gave an example of a school teacher. It wasn't that hard to find that. It wasn't very hard. Yeah. One thing. One thing you you know about about life in general is true about the economy, and it's definitely true about what we're talking about in terms of technology. Is it's there's nothing static. It's completely dynamic. It is constantly changing. You don't even know where it's changing and how fast it's changing because there's there could be hackers in you know some Eastern European country. There could be startup in a garage you know in any place in America or or around the world for that matter. Uh, there are universities uh, that are that are inventing and trying to understand all sorts of things. It's um, I mean it's 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 a constant. It's a constant change, and I think people that think that things will settle down, um, I don't think that's ever. ever I'm not so sure it will. At least not in the short run. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an exciting time to be in your in your business, uh, Tim, as a uh, professor and researcher in computer science. And I really do hope you solve this uh, the shirt uh, hacking problem because you know <laughs> I, li- I, li- I like nice shirts, and I'm probably going to be right up there to try to buy the first one that tells me how healthy or unhealthy I am. Although if it flashes up that I shouldn't eat these French fries, I might have to kind of take that shirt off. (laughs) Right, right. Maybe we go back to the old ways of doing things then. Tim Pearson, thanks so much for being with us today. My pleasure, Sid. Thanks for having me.